Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I've returned to the New Books Network's History Channel. Today, we're talking with Associate Professor of History at Framingham State University, Professor Joseph Edelman. We're going to be discussing his new book published earlier this year by Johns Hopkins University Press, Revolutionary Networks, The Business and Politics of Printing the News, 1763 to 1789. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I'm looking forward to talking about the book. So let's first, before we dive into that, into the interior of the book, let's talk about the cover. Uh, can you talk? Can you discuss a bit uh, why you chose the cover of your book? Sure. So the cover of the book, um, if your listeners aren't familiar with the process, is it's a designer at the press who works on it um, and sends it to me. And what we ended up using, uh, what the designer decided to use, is actually three images from inside the book. Um, and it shows sort of the range of materials from the printing office. So the top two thirds of the cover uh, is navy blue, but sort of through that you can see at the top there's an advertisement for Common Sense, and at the very top it says "Now in the Press" and on Thursday next will be published and sold by the printer hereof. And then you get the title of the book, Revolutionary Networks. Um, in the middle is. Um, Another newspaper, uh, the Pennsylvania Journal, and then at the bottom, the bottom third that you can see is the Massachusetts Spy, which is a newspaper that's published in Boston uh, in the early 1770s by Isaiah Thomas, uh, not the basketball player, but a Revolutionary Era printer <laughs> uh, who was a staunch patriot um, and has a, an interesting story that I tell. Uh, he was actually a historian of printing later in his life, uh, and so that made it a sort of sensible way, a, a, a way to tie things together on the cover and, and bring everything together. I see. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, so what prompted you to study printer business networks and political rhetoric during the American Revolution? Can you also clarify your argument that most printers were neither staunch loyalists nor ardent patriots, especially given your subsequent contention that patriots often deny the distinction between loyalism and neutrality? So revolutionary networks takes as its premise the idea that we think we understand the revolution and the way its politics worked, but we don't. So I'm trying to open a window into the churn that's going on beneath the surface. Uh, most historians of the politics of the revolution, uh, and people have done fantastic work on this, are really interested in printed sources, in pamphlets, in newspapers, um, in almanacs. And, but what scholars have tended to do is that they look at the text of what's written. They look at common sense and say, here is what Thomas Paine argued. Or they look at the Pennsylvania farmer letters and say, here is what John Dickinson argued. And that didn't quite strike uh, a strike right to me. So what I did is I started looking at the people who produced these texts, the printers, the people who ran printing offices, who edited who literally are setting the type and pulling the press to imprint on paper the texts that are going to be read. And when you do that, when you start to peel back the layers of what's in the text, you start to see that the printers themselves, who are artisan, they're tradesmen, they're not elite for the most part, play a really influential role in shaping what those texts look like. In other words, it's not just Thomas Paine and John Dickinson and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, or even other people not named John or Thomas. It's a whole range of artisans with ink-stained hands who are working in their offices six days a week to try and produce these texts and make a living doing that. 
who are shaping the politics behind the scenes of what's printed. So as I was doing that, uh, one of the key arguments of revolutionary networks is that we need to think about these printers as businessmen and think about the connections between the politics and the business. And as you point out with thinking about patriots and loyalists, it's really important to remember that until about 1774, so really far along into what we would call the imperial crisis, there have been a decade of protests by that point people don't particularly strongly identify in general as patriots or as loyalists. Um, They identify as opposing imperial policies. Sometimes they'll support imperial policies. A lot of what's going on is very fluid. uh, That is people changing their minds about things or or in ways that are hard to categorize. Um, And so it's not until after that that we really see, um, you know, within a few months of when the shooting war begins in 1775, that you can begin to really see a clear distinction of people actively identifying as loyalists and people actively identifying as patriots. And as you note in the question, one of the things the patriots then did was they basically, in those last several months or about a year, start to accuse publicly anyone who doesn't outwardly support their position as being a loyalist even if they are printers who are trying to hew a relatively neutral line or what we might describe as as a relatively neutral line. Why did printers describe themselves as artisans and mere mechanics? And how did kinship connections, mutual debt and credit, newspaper revenue, government contracts, and employment mobility, one or all, you can discuss one or all, expand printer business networks? So printers are artisans. They are laborers. Um, They work with their hands. Um, They are not elite. They're not farmers. They they live in in cities, in in built-up towns. Um, The people I focus on are the masters of the shops primarily. That is the people who operate the printing offices. And then in that office, um, often the printer's wife is working. The printer would then have uh, some journeymen, some men who are adults who are hired to work, some number of apprentices uh, who are teenage boys becoming men who are training in printing as a trade. And I, I use a more formal term in revolutionary networks, but in conversation, what I usually say is they're in the mushy middle of society. Uh, they are not the poorest of the poor in general. They are not the richest of the rich, except for Benjamin Franklin. They're sort of in the middle, and they're also in the middle in the sense of, of social connections. Um, they are manual laborers. They work with their hands and their bodies. Printing kills them. It wears down their bodies over a number of years. But at the same time, because they're printing texts that are written and drafted by elites, they're dealing with the political and social and cultural and religious elite of their towns on a day-by-day basis. They're editing texts. They're they're high, most of the time by the revolution, relatively literate. So they really are, the mushy middle is the best term I can come up with. Um, Now, printing as a business is difficult to sustain and make money in. Uh, And that's for two reasons. One is that it's expensive to start a business. Uh, It's really expensive to get the supplies for operating a business. You need a press 
which is not usually the most expensive. Most of that is wood, um, but there is usually an iron screw that has to be acquired from England. You need lead type, which before the revolution, there's really none in made in America. There's none new made in America, so that you have to get from England or buy secondhand. And then you just need a constant supply, obviously, of paper and ink. And you always have to be ahead of the game on that. And so one of the reasons you want to make connections is you need people to fund you. You need people to support you, um, just patrons. It's also then difficult to get people to pay for what they buy. Um, newspaper subscribers are notorious for not keeping up with their subscriptions owed. And if you read newspapers for any length of time from the colonial and revolutionary era, printers will put ads in the paper that say, you know, we really mean it this time. We're going to stop sending you your paper if you don't pay up. And of course they don't. Um, so what they do is they look for other ways to make money. So government contracts are a great way for them to make money because the government will actually pay. And it's a big job to print the laws of the colony to print the journals of the colonial assembly, to be the official printer to the legislature or the governor. Those are things that give regular work, pretty significant work, and they actually pay. Um, so uh, they're creating these connections out of necessity for their businesses and trying to connect as widely as they can, because we're talking about small communities until really about the revolution and pretty much everywhere other than Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, there's really only one, maybe two printers, and there's barely enough work for them. So one of the key things in revolutionary networks is that they're keeping politically their options open because they have to as a business strategy. They can't afford to anger anybody. What were the roles of contacts? You've already alluded to this, but if you can elaborate on it, mm -hmm. such as journeymen, co-publication projects, religious and voluntary associations, as well as those information nodes, and establishing late colonial business networks. And if possible, please also trace the free and open press ideology that culminated, really, in Benjamin Franklin's 1731 Apology for Printers, as well as, albeit indirectly, the rhetorical distinction between printers and political authors. Yeah, so just briefly to, to sort of continue from the previous question about, about the networks and the contacts, um, is that the your, you needed economic support within your community. You then also needed support outside your community. Printing a newspaper involves a lot of news from other parts of the colonies and other parts of the British Empire. So you need to develop contacts who are not just economic, but are informational. And the way you do that is uh, circulating your newspaper to other printers, which the post office allows you to circulate one copy, an exchange copy. You, you send, I'll send you one of mine, you send me one of yours arrangement to, to generate news. And then they do that more specifically through their own networks of former apprentices who have moved on to another town or family members who are also in the business. And so the, the two biggest examples of this are the Green family, uh, who go back all the way to the, to the 1640s, to the earliest printers in colonial New England, and number in the dozens who, have, who are cousins and have connections throughout New England and into the mid-Atlantic colonies as family connections. And then Benjamin Franklin and his network, uh, his, one of his biggest strategies is to take apprentices who are about to 
graduate who are about to become adults and and be able to be master printers and set them up in business somewhere else. He'll support them. He'll take a cut of the revenue. And then he gets a foot in the door in Charleston or in Barbados or in New Haven, Connecticut, or one of these other places. Um, And Franklin, as you note, is also the source of or the best example of the free press ideology in the colonial period. So the idea is that he articulates in this apology for printers, which is he publishes after he gets in trouble in 1731 for publishing an advertisement in his uh, Pennsylvania Gazette that makes fun fun of priests. And so he publishes this apology and says, our press is free and open. You can't possibly expect us to be responsible as printers for every single thing that gets printed, or else we'll just all shut down and there will be no printing. So instead, what we want is a free and open press. And when they say free, they mean free of government interference. That means no censorship, no licensing, and open, available as a forum to all within reason. Um, And most printers end up adopting that. I am a mechanic. I pull the press. I am not the guy making the decision. But as I try to show in revolutionary networks, that actually opens up space for them to be political because they are making choices about what to print. And, And Franklin is one of the ones who uses this most skillfully, that he's able to print anonymous essays that he's written and say, open forum. I'm just the guy who pulls the press. I'm just printing stuff that gets sent to me and yet can push the levers politically a little bit uh, one way or the other. How and why did certain printers initially conceive of the 1765 Stamp Act, and I thought this was interesting, as an advertising tool and an avenue to promote, for example, almanac sales? In addition, how did the Sons of Liberty, as well as royal officials, exert political and economic pressure on printers, even if said printers had already demonstrated support? Yeah, this was one of the fun finds in doing the research, is the Stamp Act in 1765 is a tax on printing, on all printed goods. So I wanted to start with that really simple fact and look at how printers reacted. And one of the first things they do is when news arrives, they start printing copies of it and selling it. I'm going to make some money off of this. And the act is supposed to take effect on November 1st of 1765. And one of their key publications each year is an almanac. Lots of people buy almanacs. Uh, And usually you'd buy one in December. You'd buy your 1766 almanac in December 1765. But now it's taxed. So they rush them out early in August and September and then advertise in the newspapers. Get them now while they're cheap because the price goes up after November 1st because of this awful tax. Um, And so their, their first reaction is really business. It's really... I'm going to try and make some money off of this, but this is the moment when almost all printers are in agreement that they oppose it. Uh, What's the distinction is those who say, well, it's a lawful act and therefore we need to follow it. And those who say it's unlawful, parliament's not allowed to do this. Um, And so they're making decisions that are based on their own commercial interests that are based on their political interests and whether they think they should follow the law or not. And then, as you note, outside of them are various groups. There's colonial governors and colonial assemblies uh, who tend to oppose the act more. There are the Sons of Liberty groups that are starting to, to organize, that are pushing printers, that are even printers who are supportive of the Stamp Act protests, the Sons of Liberty are posting notices saying, you know, you got to keep printing against the Stamp Act. You have to be stronger about it. Uh, and so they're they're navigating all of these pressures, both internally from what they think their interests are, and then externally as people sort of push them around. 
How did editorial prints and reprints of ordered accounts of events such as the 1765 Boston riots, which could include the uh, pseudonymous Andrew Marvel, stamps as anthropomorphic villains, and images of effigies, skulls and crossbones, coffins, and then that join or die uh, snake, all facilitate printer attempts to reconcile these commercial interests with readers' political concerns? Uh well, first, I'd say one of the great things about Revolutionary Networks is I was able to get permission from lots of archives to use images of lots of the things you just described. So if that's a motivation <laughs> for anybody, there you go. Um, the protests uh, against the Stamp Act were messy. The most common thing was that people in, a, in each colonial capital would try to get the person assigned to enforce the Stamp Act and sell the stamps, the stamp officer, to resign. And the way that you do that is you'd gather in the afternoon for a set of speeches, and then after dark, you'd go in a big group, you'd march to his house and yell and scream at his window until he agreed to resign. When it gets printed in the newspaper, it's all portrayed as very orderly. It's a body of gentlemen from the town, went to the house, they entreated him to come out, he came out, they negotiated, he agreed to resign, and there were Jose's. And then what happens with the printers is they reprint that. So there's a riot in Boston that gets reprinted in New Haven, in New York, in Philadelphia, and they're choosing which account to reprint based on their political interests. So the accounts that the Sons of Liberty support are getting amplified in certain ways, and other accounts maybe not so much. Um, and then the images is really fascinating. They're using them really carefully. Most newspapers don't have a lot of images. They have what we would describe as stock images, because um, each one has to be individually carved into a piece of wood. They're woodcut. And so what they usually have is a ship or a horse, right? Something you can reprint over and over and over again that applies to lots of different situations. And here they're making really specific ones or reusing them. So the skull and crossbones they'll use when the Stamp Act, when it comes time for it to be in effect, it's been nullified. It's not actually being enforced anywhere. But where the stamp is supposed to go on their newspaper, they instead print a skull and crossbones and say, this is an emblem of the effects of the stamp. Um, and so at November 1st, they're treating their publications and treating their businesses as people. They're anthropomorphizing them. They hold mock funerals for their newspapers and for freedom of the press and, and march through the streets with coffins and then publish about it in the newspaper and include, bam, an image of a coffin to really sort of draw that out um, and, and emphasize it and underscore it and make the political point um, and turn what's really a business threat Right. If you're not allowed to print with stamp without stamps, and if you have to shut down because you're afraid you're going to get arrested, which was a legitimate fear in most places other than Boston, that's a business threat. But they turn it into this very melodramatic set of protests that are are, are very politicized and treat the newspaper as if the stamp is literally killing it, uh, as, a, as if the stamp is literally a, a weapon of death. How and why did genres of pamphlets and published letters, such as John Dickinson's Pennsylvania Farmer Letter, Pennsylvania Farmer Letters, help marshal support in print for the for, for the 1767 non-importation agreements? Also, why did newspaper accounts of the 1770 Boston Massacre not uh, receive broad circulation, and how did uh, the Massachusetts Committee of 
correspondence commercially negotiate with printers to extend its letters of correspondence beyond town meetings. So each of these are really good examples of how printers are shaping news behind the scenes. Um, but you don't see it when you just looked at the look at the published um, excuse me, when you don't look at the published text. So the maybe the most important set of arguments in the Imperial Crisis uh, is often considered John Dickinson's Letters from a Pennsylvania Farmer, which is a series of 12 letters published first in Philadelphia newspapers in December 1767 into early March of 1768, and then circulated, and printers are making decisions to republish them in nearly every newspaper in North America. A number of printers decide to collect them into a pamphlet. Uh, Over in London, where Benjamin Franklin is representing the interests of Pennsylvania and other colonies, he gets it collected into a pamphlet so that it can circulate in England too. Um, But what's happening is each printer is deciding to reprint. Some don't. The first version gets published in the Pennsylvania Chronicle, which is published by a printer named William Goddard. Uh, But Dickinson gets in a fight with Goddard, and so he starts making edits. And there's a second version that gets published in the Pennsylvania Journal, published by William Bradford. And Dickinson is then writing to other towns, to Sons of Liberty, to printers saying, you got to print this other version, the the journal version, because I've made some edits. Don't trust the Chronicle version. So there's multiple versions circulating. There's people making those decisions. Um, The massacre, I I touch on only briefly in revolutionary networks, because it's, it's really hard to prove a negative. There's not a lot of news coverage around the colonies about the massacre. And the best thing I can say about it is that it's it's hard for patriots to fit it into their narrative of orderly protest. It is, if your listeners are at all familiar with it, it's a messy event. There are street protests against the British soldiers. There are accusations that the teenagers and young men who are protesting are throwing things at the British soldiers, and maybe that provoked them to um, to fire that night. So for them, they have trouble sort of fitting it into the mold of orderly protest, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons it gets ignored. Um, now, a couple of years later, the Boston Committee is working to try and create unity just within Massachusetts. And so when it gets created in 1772, the committee writes to every town in Massachusetts and says, join us, let's unite against British policy. And the towns write back with their messages of support. And the Boston committee wants those then published in the Boston newspapers. And the first couple of weeks, the printers do that. But then you can see in the minutes of the committee that the printers start resisting. And this is Patriot printers. This is Isaiah Thomas, who is on the cover and is a staunch patriot and fully supports the cause. And Eads and Gill, who are our publishers of the Boston Gazette, staunch patriots. Eads was part of the Loyal Nine, which is the group that turned into the Sons of Liberty. They're on board with the Boston Committee's mission, but the Boston Committee doesn't want to pay for reprinting all these letters. They expect the printers to do it as a public service, which their newspapers, they portray their newspapers as a public service. But the printers say, no, this is taking up valuable space. You guys have to pay for this because it's taking up ad space. And so it's a really good example of even when the printers are politically supportive, even when they're on board with the arguments that a group is making, they're still pushing back. They're still looking out for their business interests. They're still making sure that they're not destroying their own businesses for the sake of the cause. Why did young printers conceive of the reauthorized 1773 Tea Act as political? 
And how did they integrate oral manuscript and print media to protest it across these networks? Also, why was an account of the Tea Party not immediately put to print in Boston, but then remediated in Philadelphia and elsewhere on the eve of intercolonial protests? So the story of the Tea Party, of dumping the tea in Boston Harbor, is pretty familiar um, to most people, that the tea ships land and the Sons of Liberty won't let them take the tea off. The governor says you can't leave without paying your tax on the tea, uh, and then after three weeks, the tea gets dumped. Um, what's going on behind the scenes now? Part of this with the younger printers is that we're now about eight or nine years into an imperial crisis. By this point, I can start to see a generational divide. The younger printers tend to be more energetic, a little more radical, a little more ready to push against uh, push against imperial policy than some of the older printers. So there's there's more people ready to go in terms of printing in strong ways. After the Boston Tea Party, what happens is Paul Revere and his horse, I always feel sorry for the horse, um, <laughs> ride south to New York and then Philadelphia with the news. He's as an express rider. And he gets there in eight days, which is about twice as fast as you can get from Boston to Philadelphia normally, or at least twice as fast as news travels. And so he arrives on Christmas Eve on December 24th, and Philadelphia printers, including William Bradford, publish the news, and they call it a Christmas box. They print a one-sheet, what we call a broadside, which is basically a poster. It's the same size piece of paper as a newspaper, but just one size, one side. And you can see on that piece of paper, you can see these networks, and you can see the different kind of information come together. So the Tea Party took place on a Thursday night which is why it's not published in Boston. The newspaper days are Monday and Thursday. So the newspapers had already come out Thursday morning or mid-afternoon. So that Christmas box contains the news from the latest newspaper, and I have identified it as the Massachusetts Spy, as Isaiah Thomas's newspaper, of the midday December 16th before the tea was dumped. And that includes accounts of town meetings and all sorts of other things. There's then a handwritten manuscript letter, which was also important for them in circulating information and then getting it into print, from the New York Committee of Correspondence, where Revere had stopped and visited, and that's a letter of support. We heard the news. We think this is great. Yay. Um, and then there's a piece, and it doesn't appear anywhere else, that I am pretty sure, it's a guess, but I'm pretty sure, is the account that Paul Revere gave to the printers when he got to town of what actually happened that Thursday night. So by the time it gets printed in Boston, it's the following Monday. So the account has been smoothed out in certain ways, uh, has been sort of routinized. And what you get in this Christmas box instead is a, a little bit rawer and a little bit fresher. And I'm pretty sure is Paul Revere. Now, the best part, and I'm a little bit a spoiler alert, but I trust your listeners will make their decision to read the book without the whole description is is even better. They use that <laughs> broadside because the Philadelphia T ship shows up the next day. So they actually use that broadside then that traveled through these networks that they've a stat that printers have been key parts of to circulate information to stop a Philadelphia Tea Party. They basically show the broadside to the captain of the T ship and say, "Don't even bother landing. You should just go back to England, or else something bad's going to happen to your tea cargo." And he does. He leaves. Um, and so it's it, it's information you can use. It's news you can use that starts in Boston, that travels with all of these various uh, forms of media, coalesces in this broadside in Philadelphia that then they use to change political activity and political events. 
If possible, please provide examples of how the imperial crisis stimulated printers' commercial and proto-nationalist aspirations, such as the Joiner Die Snake or the New American Post Office, as well as instances when partisan affiliations failed to trump commercial interests. Sure. So the the post office is actually one of the first things I did research on in in working on the book, and it's a a story I love. So it involves a printer, William Goddard, who was involved in the Dickinson uh, at, at the Pennsylvania Farmer Letters, if you recall, um, who is a bit of a renegade. And so he's in Philadelphia, tries to start a second office in Baltimore, and then use the post office to send news back and forth. But one of his rivals is the postmaster of Philadelphia and keeps thwarting him, won't let him send stuff, charges him exorbitant rates. Uh, Goddard gets angry and decides he's going to start an entirely new post office that's not connected to the British Empire. He's going to start what he calls a constitutional post. And so he takes off on his own and starts selling this idea. We're going to create a new post office. It's going to connect the colonies on a a firm basis. We're going to keep the revenue and put it right back into the system. One of their complaints about the British post office is that the money goes straight to the British treasury, um, any profit. They're worried about security because the British – they think the British are opening mail, and it turns out they're right. And so he goes and sells this to various places uh, from Williamsburg. is as far south as he gets, and he actually gets all the way up to Falmouth, Maine, which is what's now Portland, Maine, um, selling this idea for a post office, and they actually try to start it. Uh, it doesn't go – terribly well. Uh, It's not particularly effective in getting established. And the First Continental Congress declines to take it over when they meet in the fall of 1774. They're they're not quite ready for that. Uh, But after fighting starts in 1775, it is one of the first things that the Second Continental Congress establishes. It is the U.S. Post Office, the third oldest institution in the United States, um, behind only the Continental Army and the Continental Congress itself. It's they realize once fighting starts that communication is that important that they need a way to circulate information, to circulate it in print, to circulate it in handwritten form, um, that they get on board with starting a post office in the summer of 1775 as one of the earliest institutions created under the Continental Congress. What were common characteristics of loyalist printers? And correct me if I'm wrong, these are amount to 40% of all revolution period printers. And how did loyalists such as James Rivington of New York and Robert Wells of Charleston manage to flourish as publishers while distinguishing between business networks and politics? In addition, why did printers of all political persuasions publish those patriot alarm letters in newspapers in order to reach as broad a readership as possible? So the most famous Patriot Alarm letter is during the Battle of Le- Battles of Lexington and Concord on April 19th, 1775, uh, is basically a, a dispatch from Watertown, which is about five miles west of Boston, uh, written on the, in the morning of that day. Um, one of the Patriot leaders saying, this is happening. The British troops have marched. We've heard of reports of, of fighting. Pass it on. And the letter gets passed all the way down to Philadelphia. And everybody prints it because it's news. And just at a certain level... Right, this is the core of it. Is is they want to print news, and so Rivington reprints it. Others reprinted who are loyalists, because it really is just news. Um, so the loyalists, more generally, who are a pretty significant group, um, in general, I found that their networks tend to be a little different from everybody else, whether they are 
politically inactive or patriot. The loyalists tend to be more recent immigrants, and there's an especially strong group of them who come from Scotland, and only in the 10 or 15 years before the Revolutionary War starts. Their networks tend to be more tightly linked and closed. They're connected to one another and not really to anybody else, where most other printers have this sort of diffuse group of contacts. And they're much more reliant on government patronage, especially from the imperial officials, from customs offices, from governors who are, for obvious reasons, pro-empire, um, as opposed to everybody else. So Rivington and, and Wells, um, Wells is a little bit of an outlier. He'd been in Charleston, South Carolina for a couple of decades by the time the imperial crisis started. And so he's an example of a loyalist who had been established and simply continued in his community. And Charleston's not especially strongly pro-patriot, or, or there's certainly a strong strain of loyalty in Charleston. And so he's perfectly able to continue in business until the fighting starts, at which point he and his family decamp for the Bahamas and his sons end up becoming some of the first printers in the Bahama Islands. Rivington is an English immigrant. He comes from a London bookselling family, ends up in New York and starts a newspaper that becomes the most popular in all of the colonies. And he drives the Sons of Liberty nuts. They keep trying to find ways to shut him down without actually committing acts of violence because he's too popular, they say in his letters. Um, and, and But he's successful, and New York is another place where there's a strong strain of loyalty. Um, not everywhere is Boston. <laughs> Boston is very pro-patriot. It's tough to be a loyalist there. But in other places, uh, even places like Philadelphia that we sort of think of as patriot strongholds, there's a lot more mix in the population, and so they're they're able to to do that work to make the kind of connections to keep up the government patronage in ways that are helpful to them. How and why did printers, publications, commercial connections, and access to paper and ink all stagnate during the Revolutionary War? If possible, please also explain the aims and printer politics of the Continental Post Office and how common sense as well as early copies of the Declaration of Independence were so effectively circulated throughout the states. Well, the short answer about ink and paper is that war creates havoc and and economic problems generally. Uh, The movement of armies, the depression of trade, just make it harder to get supplies. Um, And you can literally see that if you look at some of these newspapers. So uh, one example at the American Antiquarian Society, which is uh, maybe the best archive for newspapers in the United States, um, has a run of the Maryland Journal, um, which is published by William Goddard and his sister, Mary Catherine Goddard. Um, obviously, they're they're one of my favorite families of printing. Um, but as you look through the war years, as you literally page through, the size of the paper changes, the quality of the paper changes, the issues are numbered consecutively, but they're missing weeks. Um, at one point, they're using something that's called cartridge paper, which is a very cheap blue-tinted paper that usually used for making cartridges for your weapons. It's the kind of cheap paper that you use in a musket rather than for printing and circulating anything. And you can see as you page through this ebb and flow, and it's it's true of other newspapers too, um, that they're literally just having an economic struggle to survive. In some ways, the, the politics drain out of it. Ironically, you have to make a political decision of, are you a patriot? Are you a loyalist? Are you going to stay behind British lines or stay behind American lines? But once you've done that, you really just need to find paper and your suppliers are drying up and your ability to get paper is drying up, and you're 
need to get ink, which I'll spare everyone the pun of ink drying up, <laughs> um, or not as the case <laughs> may be. But there's, there's a literal economic struggle. Um, so early in the war, that's not quite true just yet, because the British are pretty localized in their movements in 75 and 76. And so common sense um, circulates pretty well. There are 25 pamphlet editions in 1776. Most of those are published in Philadelphia. Um, and if anyone's interested in learning more specifically about common sense, um, there's a chapter in a really great book by a, a scholar named Trish Loughran, um, who's she's written quite a bit about common sense and how it's circulated as a pamphlet. What I add to the story is thinking it's not just circulating in pamphlet form, it's circulating in excerpt form. People are publishing little excerpts in newspapers. People are publishing um, little pieces in almanacs. They're publishing little pieces of it in these other ways uh, to get it to circulate. It's also circulating by hand. Um, there's a journal which has since been published of a loyalist who's out in Kentucky somewhere reading it, and it deeply upsets him because he's a loyalist, and he thinks Benjamin Franklin wrote it, um, which I don't buy because it's it doesn't sound like Franklin. It's too angry. Mm. Um but right, it, it's circulating to these sort of far-flung places, um, and the de declaration too. It it circulates. Congress literally sends out a couple of hundred copies, and then lots of newspapers reprint it in whole or in part, and it's read publicly. And then they report on the public reading and can reprint parts of it and print where the where in the declaration the huzzahs came uh, as the crowd was listening to it. Um, so these things are just sort of churning and regenerating themselves in a variety of ways. Please compare and contrast, and you've already kind of alluded to this, the Patriot and Loyalist print our dislocation logistics during the war. What examples can you provide of sympathetic or Loyalist printers targeted by Patriots, as well as the fates of Loyalists who made post-war British compensation claims? So yeah, Revolutionary Networks is... Uh, based on a database of printers, about 750 who were active during the war, um, sorry, during, during the war, during the second half of the 18th century, from about the mid-1750s to the mid-1790s. Um, and so I was using that to try and generate as much information as I could. And there's a lot of incomplete entries because we don't know a lot about some of these men and women. Um, but during the war, there's a little over 100 printers who were active in 1775. Almost half of them have to leave their printing offices at some point during the war. The British army ends up occupying almost every port along the Atlantic coast at some point. Boston, Newport, New York, Philadelphia, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia. They're in all of these for some number of months, uh, or in New York's case, for years, the, almost the entirety of the war. Anybody who's not a loyalist loyalist leaves town when they think the British are coming. Starting a few days before Lexington and Concord, when the Patriot printers of Boston head out of town, uh, all the way through the New York printers, everybody. The contrast is the Loyalist printers basically have to sort of constrain themselves to places where the British are. So they start to coalesce in New York. They pop back up in Philadelphia during 1777 and 78 when the British are there, and then they leave again. Um, the Savannah printer, who's one of the more interesting stories, a guy named James Johnston, um, he leaves when the war starts because the legislature threatens him and he heads to the Bahamas. And then the British show up and occupy Savannah for a few years. So he comes back as the king's printer 
and then they evacuate, they leave Savannah. And so he leaves again. And then after the war, he's an unusual case. Um, The legislature of the state of Georgia, who had just fought a war to gain independence, writes to Johnston and says, please come back. We'll give you your property back, which we had confiscated. Come back and print for the state of Georgia. And he does because he wants to be able to run his business. And they can't find anybody else who wants to print in Savannah, Georgia, because at that point in time, it's a pretty small printing market. um, And getting started fresh would be a pretty high threshold of difficulty. So they actually invite this loyalist back after the war uh, out of necessity, and it works for both sides. Um, So a lot of these printers face violence. Um, In Norfolk, a patriot printer named John Hunter Holt has his office ransacked by British soldiers. Um, a variety of printers are attacked in other places. Uh, in New York, Rivington, his office finally closes um, when a, a rogue group of Sons of Liberty from Connecticut. Um, so there's a little tri-state area politics going on, but these Connecticut Sons of Liberty come down to New York and destroy his office. And the New York City Sons of Liberty are upset with the Connecticut Sons of Liberty because Rivington was their problem, not the Connecticut people's problem. But um, he leaves. He then comes back during the British occupation and stays as King's printer. Um he then also stays after the war, which is not true of most loyalist printers, and we'll get to that in a second. But Rivington stays and continues, and most people hate him, but it also fuels speculation um, that he was a spy for George Washington, um, which comes up a little bit that he might have been connected to the Culper Sky Spy Ring, mm-hmm. um, which is the group that's featured in um, Turn, yeah. the AMC show from a couple of years ago. Um so he might have been a spy. There's some evidence of that. It's espionage, so it's hard to pin down sort of intentionally. Um, but most, more of the Loyalist printers than not left the new United States, which is the reverse of what happens for Loyalists generally. Most Loyalists end up staying, or more a majority end up staying in general. But of printers, a majority leaves. And they end up filing petitions with the Loyalist Claims Commission, which is an organization that the British set up after the war to compensate loyalists for their losses during the war. And so I was able to examine hundreds of pages of testimonials of how much service they had done for the crown and the horrible things that they had suffered at the hands of American of the Americans um, from generic descriptions of abuse um, to a printer in Albany uh, whose brother was disabled, had had no use of his legs, who describes uh, his brother having to hide in a cabbage patch to for air um, because he couldn't escape the, the Patriots when they came to attack the printing office, um, and detail all their losses. I assume, as the British did, that they were at least generous in how they described how much they lost, <laughs> if not exaggerating. Um, but it gives us an account of of what they think they lost, of how much they think their printing office is worth. Um, It shows us who their connections were. They had basically endorsement letters, letters of recommendation um, from major figures. So all the Boston loyalists had a letter from General Gage, who's the military governor uh, at the end of the colonial period, who leads the attack, who orders the attack on Lexington and Concord. Um, And from other sort of loyalist officials. So it's a, a really interesting way to see what's going on and see these networks and see what they think their offices were worth, which is we, we don't have a lot of numbers for the printing trade. And so that in and of itself is useful. In the early Republic, how and why did Western printers follow the weekly colonial model of reprinting the news, whereas printers who remained in Eastern seaboard cities, such as Boston, uh, New York, and Philadelphia, began to publish dailies. And going back to the previous uh, 
the question, what happened to loyalist printers? So as I said, a lot of them, a lot of them left. The ones who stayed um, faced ridicule. Uh, some of them were able to integrate back in their communities. Uh, the most famous is Rivington and Hugh Gain, who's also a New York printer. Um, they end up out of the newspaper business within a few years, but are in book selling, book publishing, sort of allied trades of of printing. Uh, but more generally, after the war, uh, what I found and talk about in the last chapter of Revolutionary Networks is an explosion of print. So before the revolution, uh, if you look at just sort of a line graph, the number of printers and the number of newspapers are both increasing in a linear fashion. It then stagnates during the war. It sort of stays flat, if not dropping a little bit in terms of numbers. And there's a lot of churn. There's a lot of people who leave and never come back. There's a lot of new people who come in during the war. But then once you hit 1782, 83, as peace arrives, it just shoots up exponentially in a really sharp rate uh, that it more than doubles the number of newspapers in the seven years after the war ends from about 45 in 1783 to about 100 by 1789. Um, right, That's really fast and really rapid. And the number of printers is going up and it just keeps going up into the early republic way beyond the scope, uh, the, geogra- the chronological scope of, of revolutionary networks. And what I talk about in that chapter is two different kinds of growth. So one is that printing pushes away from the coast in a real way for the very first time. And in those new places where printing is arriving in uh, newly established Euro-American towns, often at the expense of displaced Native American communities, they want a printer. They want a printer because a printer means they can have a newspaper. This is the community. If they have a newspaper, they have a way to get somebody to exchange news, to get connected in through postal systems, through printer networks. But it looks a lot like the 1750s and 1760s in most of these colonial towns. There's barely enough business to support one printer. And so each printer is very politically neutral. They're very much open to all parties because they can't afford to lose the business of anybody. They're very much about drawing in from all sides of the community. They're very much about trying to get government contracts and get other positions that can help support them. Um, On the coasts, and most especially in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, which is where the vast majority of printing takes place before 1800, something different is happening, where the trade is getting also much bigger, but also then much more specialized and much more competitive. So there's more than 10 newspapers in those towns. You can specialize a little bit. You can anger people of one political faction and focus on people of another political faction if you've got 10 newspapers. You can focus on publishing commercial news. It's the 1780s or the real rise of commercial papers, what today would be sort of the business pages of the Wall Street Journal, um, the prices of goods and the arrival of ships, and that's it in a newspaper. Boston, New York, and Philadelphia are getting daily newspapers. Most newspapers before the war are weekly. That's about as often as you can print. But now they can go to daily. They can publish every single day and print news that way. And so that's that's really what we're looking at after the war is there's almost two different printing trades. And then once you get into the 1790s, which I leave off the book at the end of the 1780s, um, 
in part because at some point you have to stop, uh, and in part because there's a lot of really good work on printing and politics and business in the 1790s and beyond. Um, but what you start to see is that the functions of printing start to shift. The printers, the literal people who set type and pull the press, become more focused on that. And you begin to see editors, professional editors hired for newspapers. You begin to see professional publishers, people who finance newspapers who are not themselves involved in the printing trade. Um, and you start to see more specialization and, and it spreads. Um, and that's all coming out of the 1780s and this post-war period when print is really expanding at a rapid rate. So going off that, what were post-war changes and continuities in uh, printer protests against taxation and libel charges, as well as changes and continuities in, in printer demands for a free and open press, as well as impartiality rhetoric, especially during the uh, constitutional ratification debates? And what were the ultimate fates of Patriot printers, if you can just give a couple examples? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm tempted to say they died, but... <laughs> Before that... <laughs> um, it but before that, um, so I mean, the older Patriot printers um, sort of fade away and have sort of tragic fates. Um, Benjamin Eads, who I'd mentioned before, is one of these leaders of the Sons of Liberty. Uh, after the war starts, he ends up pretty well destitute. He's never able to get back into printing. He's never able to see financial success. Um, his son, Peter, becomes a reasonably successful printer in Portland, Maine. Um, you know, somebody like William Bradford in Philadelphia is also older. He had served in a variety of positions um, in Pennsylvania and the continental government. He, he served a position with, um, I'm forgetting whether it was the Pennsylvania Navy or the Continental Navy, but he had served a leadership position there. I um, mean, he sort of fades out into retirement and one of his sons takes over uh, the printing business. Um, so that older generation, they sort of move away. The, the younger generation, uh, somebody like Isaiah Thomas, the war is his springboard, um, first from Boston to Worcester, um, because he has to run away from British authorities. And then he launches into the book publishing business, which makes him enormously successful and pretty wealthy and in a position to save all of his newspapers and use them to establish the American Antiquarian Society and write a history of printing in America. Um, and so some of those younger printers who are coming into the trade um, are able to do that where some of the older ones, I mean, I can also think like Peter Timothy down in Charleston, South Carolina, um, he drowned in a shipwreck during the war, um, which I, I don't mean to be quite as stark as all the older printers died tragic deaths um, and all the younger printers met with success. But um, the, the older printers who were there. Um, and one of the things to remember about the revolution is it's so long. It's 25 years from the Stamp Act crisis to the constitution taking effect. Um, and so it's a whole generation, if not more, uh, of the trade that some of those older printers who were really important in the 1760s and early 70s, they're retired, they're gone, they're, they're out of business simply because of life cycles by the time you get to the end of the 1780s. And you're getting all sorts of new people that you meet in the 1780s who are just arriving um, and just becoming important. Um, so I, I, I don't want to lose the free press because one of the big questions for them after the war is um, what does it mean to have a free press in a republic? Uh, they had imagined before 1775 a free and open press as free from government interference and therefore in a way in opposition to tyrannical government. We, we are a free press, meaning we stand 
in front of a government that is trying to be corrupt and tyrannical, well, okay, now we've got a representative government that theoretically is not tyrannical and not corrupt. What role do we play? Do we still need a free press? Eight states think it, think that they do and include um, some statement. They often call it a bulwark of liberty or, or something like that. In state constitutions, it gets included in the Bill of Rights for the federal constitution. But they still face, um, in part because they are they still face threats um, or what they perceive as threats because they are a a well-established trade. Um, and so one of the sort of more humorous events that I, I write about is in 1785, the Massachusetts General Court, the legislature for Massachusetts, decides they need to raise revenue. And what's a really good rate, way to raise revenue? Well, a stamp tax and a tax on advertising in newspapers. And the printers go ballistic. They point out pretty quickly that it's hypocritical to pass a stamp tax after what they went through in 1765. They make the argument that people are just going to buy papers from out of state. They're going to buy Connecticut and Rhode Island and New Hampshire and Vermont newspapers to get their news rather than pay the tax uh, because they're going to end up getting very similar news. And so it'll drive Massachusetts newspapers out of business. Um, Matthew Carey, who's a, a Irish immigrant into Philadelphia in the 1780s, has just started a newspaper, and he publishes all sorts of things. Um, he was an Irish Catholic and so was part of the oppressed majority in Dublin, and he had gotten in trouble for publishing all things, all sorts of things in Dublin um, that were testing the limits of freedom of the press. And so he you know, analogized this to the suffering that he had endured and to the French regime, which was an entirely licensed, you had to be a licensed printer and were only allowed to print what the government said you could and how terrible it was. And after about a year, the legislature relents and repeals it. Um, but they're still sort of facing that. Um, but by the constitution, they are, printers as a group are pretty strongly in support of the constitution. As a group, they are relatively national or or interstate. They're relatively broad in their thinking because they've got these networks, because they've got these strong connections. Um, there are some printers who oppose ratification. Um, my, my friend William Goddard threatens to restart a new post office because he thinks the Continental Post Office is suppressing any arguments against the Constitution and, and violating various laws and statutes and nothing comes of it. Um, so there are, there are some that oppose it, but as a group, they're pretty strongly in favor of it. And they end up marching in several cities that are what are called um, grand processions, parades, to celebrate ratification. And printers create their own floats. They march through the streets as a trade with a printing press as their float uh, to help celebrate ratification. So they're really... Um, for the most part, they're they're at the vanguard. They're ready for ratification. They support it. Uh, they're ready to celebrate it. Um, and I leave my story on on that relatively upbeat note. So I have a final question for you. What's uh, going on with you next? Are you working on any uh, future projects? I know you just got a promotion. What's going on with you next? Uh, well, my next project is uh, building on this project. I'm working on a... a a book length project on the post office in America and thinking about the ways um, more broadly that communication and information is circulating, not just among printers and not just during the revolution, um, but really trying to connect from the 17th century and interactions among Native Americans and colonists and English and then British imperial officials uh, are trying to 
create official pathways for information, unofficial and and informal pathways for communication and information, and and think about how those interact. Um, and then a, a key player in that um, who will get significant attention in the book is Benjamin Franklin. So I'm I'm indulging my interest in Benjamin Franklin and and doing a lot of research on him and his his postal work. Well, we hope you uh, remember the New Books Network for that particular project. I'd be happy to come back and talk with you again. All right. So uh, thank you for being on the show today, uh, Professor Edelman. Um, the book is Revolutionary Networks, The Business and Politics of Printing the News, 1763 to 1789, out earlier this year by Johns Hopkins University Press. On behalf of Joe Edelman and the New Books Network, this is Ryan Tripp. Please tune in next time.